hppodcraft.com. A little after noon on the 28th day of June, 1924, Dr. Morehouse stopped his machine before the Tanner place and four men alighted. The stone building, in perfect repair and freshness, stood near the road, and but for the swamp in the rear, it would have possessed no trace of dark suggestion. The spotless white doorway was visible across a trim lawn for some distance down the road, and as the doctor's party approached, it could be seen that the heavy portal yawned wide open. Only the screen door was closed. The proximity of the house had imposed a kind of nervous silence on the four men, for what lurked therein could only be imagined with vague terror. This terror underwent a marked abatement when the explorers heard distinctly the sound of Richard Blake's typewriter. That was the opening paragraph of Deaf, Dumb, and Blind, a story by C.M. Eddy that was revised by H.P. Lovecraft, which is why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. And that reader was Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Yes. Go check out his work on the hplhs.org. You can get radio dramas, movies, merchandise. It's a wonderland of Lovecraftian delight. Why not buy something special for that wonder-loving grandmother in your life? (laughs) (laughs) hplhs.org. Hey, wait, hold on. My mom is a grandmother, mm. and she enjoys those. Every time they go to Necronomicon, they, they pick up the newest dramas yeah. that they do, the radio shows, and she loves them. So, As they should. Yeah. I am neither making fun of HPLHS or Wonder Loving Grandmothers. I think it's a good, I think it's a love connection. <laughs> Being totally serious about that. Hey, you know what's crazy? This is it. After 468 yeah. episodes, we finally approach the end of Lovecraft's work. <laughs> this is the last of these CM Eddie revisions. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, there have been some ups and downs with these. Mostly ups, I'd say, because Love Dead was good, I thought. Yeah. Ghost Eater and Ashes were bad, but they were ridiculous and fun, you know, even if they weren't good stories. Mm -hmm. This one, meh. This was like the Jack Reacher of Tom Cruise movies, you know? (laughs) It's there. You know it's there. (laughs) Death, Dumb, and Blind was written in 1924. Uh, Lovecraft touched it up or did whatever he did that year. I had read in February that year, although I have a letter that maybe contradicts that. It it was shortly before or right after his move to New York that he was working on it. And the story was published in Weird Tales in April of 1925. Let's get into it, because unfortunately the story is long. It is. It's bad food and there's lots of it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's dig in. Our story begins with this guy, Dr. Morehouse, and three of his buddies stepping out of a car on a Saturday afternoon like a bunch of badasses. Mm -hmm. They stroll (laughs) with purpose to the Tanner house. Now, Tanner is the name of the guy that used to live there a while back because the guy that lives there now is called Richard Blake, not to be confused with Robert Blake, the protagonist from Haunter in the Dark. Yeah, I don't think Lovecraft even started corresponding with Robert Block, on whom that character is based, until 1933. So this is well before that. Mm -hmm. But it did confuse me at first because... This Richard Blake is also a poet and weird author. So yeah. this is a very similar character. And- These men let themselves into the house and they hear someone clacking away on a typewriter. The reason they're checking it out is that an hour before, a man ran out of the house screaming and making a fuss to the nearest neighbor, which is half a mile away. It says he was babbling incoherently of house, dark, swamp, and room. House, dark, swamp, room. I think it sounded a little like that. <laughs> they didn't say anything about improv jazz. 
Um, incoherent ba- <laughs> scatting just sounds like incoherent babbling to me. I don't okay, know the difference. could be. Uh, so, Doctor Morehouse, a <laughs> Call Cthulhu character from the role playing game, as far as I can tell, pretty yeah. much took it upon himself to investigate this guy screaming to see what has gone on in the house, mm. because the guy that saw this screaming man, who, whose name is Dobbs, yeah, for yeah. some reason. They don't say his name until, like, the very end of the story, and they just keep referring to him. But he's got a name. Yeah, he does. Just for the sake of clarity, even though it's not revealed in the story yet, this guy who bursts from the house is Richard Blake's servant, Dobbs. That's who it is. Dobbs supposedly saw some kind of creature bust out of the Tanner house. (laughs) The doc knows about the legends. Yes, he saw a slavering, maddened creature bust out of there and and run into the swamp. So something pretty nasty. Dr. Morehouse knew that when these two guys moved in, Blake and his serpent, Dobbs, to this old Tanner place, that there would be trouble. Richard Blake is an author and a poet who, after serving in the Great War, became deaf, dumb, and blind. Yes, it said the genius who had gone into the war with every nerve and sense alert and had come out as he was now, still debonair, though half a paralytic, still walking with song among the sights and sounds of living fantasy, though shut forever from the physical world. I thought that, I mean, this is a cool protagonist. Yeah. This is like wait until dark on steroids, man. <laughs> yes. You know, and if and if Eddie were to have followed Wells' law, where you just have one thing. I, I mean, I think this could have been good. What are the advantages and disadvantages that this person might have in a struggle? I mean, the mm-hmm. disadvantages are obvious. He's deaf, dumb, and blind. But what does he gain with the imagination of a weird writer that could he could bring to bear in a conflict? Yes. I think this story is maybe trying for that. Uh, that's something I thought about when we were doing notes for this, is to think how I would communicate, how I would get around, you know, just mm-hmm. by feeling things. That's, that's all you got. To know if my wife was in the room with me, she would have to touch me. Yeah. And to communicate, we'd have to have some kind of tactile code or uh, I'm sure that there's people that suffer from being both blind and deaf and they communicate. Uh, Helen Keller had a a type of sign language, I know, that was based in touch, touching in the palm to be able to communicate things. I would have the added advantage of knowing what things look like and how to speak and, and communicate. Like I could still write. As this guy can. But I mean, you would also have this really intense internal life. You'd have to. That other people wouldn't have access to, which inherently yeah. has some dramatic worth to it, right? Because do you have you discovered something or know something that nobody else knows and you can't get the word across in time because of yeah. you, you know your disabilities? I mean, I th- <laughs> there's so much potential in a character like that. Yes, and none of it is touched it's in this wandered, story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Blake reveled in the weird history of this place. Supposedly he could sense something about it, even though he could not see or hear. Dr. Morehouse was part of the old Venom family, same place as in The Love Dead. And his grandfather uh, was one of the people that burned Simon Tanner's body in 1819. Yeah, Simon Tanner being the guy who owned this house originally. So, okay, it's a wizard bad guy house. I mean, we we know this trope. Uh, Seems people were freaking out back in the day because Tanner had some strange characteristics. Trifling bony protuberances on the fore part of the skull are of no significance and often observable in bald-headed men. Are they? (laughs) Well, I mean, people can develop things like that. I don't know if it has. Often. Well, I don't know also if it has anything to do with being bald headed. I mean, my sister is a nurse and she worked for years in an old folks home. And she said some of the residents would actually develop horns on their foreheads or like horny growths. Whoa. Keratosis or I think they call cutaneous horns. I can't remember exactly. But wow. You know, you get deposits under the skin that can develop into these sort of bony protuberances. I think it has more to do with age, maybe a certain composition of your body or even your diet more than it has to do with whether you're bald or not. Right. right. But uh, it's not totally crazy that somebody would have some kind of horn like protuberances from their 
often is the word I had trouble with. Yeah, it's not as often as the story would make it out to be. And in any way, in the context of this story, that little semi-medical throwaway was just a way to tell us that Simon Tanner had horns. Yeah. When they found him. So maybe he was part devil or something. I mean, or I always laugh when the devil is the antagonist or related to something because he's the devil. Mm -hmm. Like. Sort of like when it's Halloween, you'll see a group of kids dressed up. One is a Frankenstein, one's a Dracula. Maybe there's a rock and roll werewolf or something like that. And then one kid's the devil. (laughs) That's a crazy power differential, you know? (laughs) It's like Galactus hanging out with the Shocker. Right. Yeah. No, that's it. Because the Dracula drinks blood, sneaks around. But the devil is the source of all evil in the world. Mm -hmm. The antagonist to God. I just don't think he really fits in with the other with the other monsters. So these guys that are going into the house are investigators know about this. Vague legends and half-furtive scraps of gossip handed down from curious grandmothers. Uh, curious, see, Lovecraft would have liked to have written wonder-loving grandmothers, but I think at the last moment thought, no, I'm going to hold on to that one for myself. <laughs> Which he did. Whisper in darkness. That's where the uh, wonder-loving uh, grandmothers come from. That's right, yes. And strangely enough, Curious Grandmothers is one of my favorite websites. <laughs> CuriousGrandmothers.gov, for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> but they've got some interesting things there. Okay, I'll have to go to the library and check that out. <laughs> uh, the legends go back to 1692 when a tanner was killed on the gallows. Of course, the legends go back to 1692. <laughs> They all do. They all do. But the house was built in 1747 by the Tanners, who were considered a bit odd. It wasn't until Simon Tanner that people got really spooked. It seems he bricked up the windows in the room and reinforced the door. Now, that same door had to be chopped down in 1819 when stinking smoke was pouring out of the chimney. They burned the body they found there, not because of these bony protuberances, but because of the look on his face. It freaked them out. That's kind of cool. Yeah. The scary expression on his face, although it's hard for me to imagine what that expression would, would look like. But I guess that's the point. Yeah. But that's the history of the house. Now, when the stinking smoke was pouring out of the chimney, was that because of some sort of burning that was going on in the room? Then they knocked on the door, found his body, and then burned it? Or was the stinking smoke because they burned his body? I, I assumed it was something else in there that was smoking and being stinky. Okay. And then they went in and they burned his body, I think. I think so, but too. So something to do with whatever he was doing. That's one of my biggest complaints about this story is that it's really poorly written in that I had a hard time figuring out what the heck was going on through most of the story. Totally, yeah. It's it's constructed very poorly. And it doesn't need to be that way, either. Some no. of the stuff could be very straightforward. But anyway, that's the history of the, of the house. Now we're back to the present and the guys are heading into the house. When the investigators get in there, they can hear somebody, like I said, banging away on the typewriter. Inside, it's very cold, while outside, it was hot. What? Wow. Cold? When you walk into a a ghostly, creepy place? Of course. And when they do get in there, the sound of the typewriting suddenly ceases. So Dr. Morehouse and the investigators, my new band name, start searching the house. Dr. Morehouse and the investigators. It's a great name for (laughs) me. It's so obscure, you know. And the person that... What kind of fan are you trying to attract? (laughs) Well, all I know is I love Deaf, Dumb, and Blind, so if that band is anything like that story, I'm there. (laughs) Oh, boy. So they start searching the house. They find Simon's old library, uh, but it has many new Braille books within. Mm -hmm. They explain that they have some touch system for Dobbs to communicate other things to Blake. Also... 
we'll mention this last, Richard Blake is sitting there at the typewriter. I think that would be the first thing you would notice when you walk in the room, but... <laughs> no, <laughs> let's wait for that one. He's no longer typing, as we said, and there's a stack of pages on the floor, one still wound into the typewriter. So Dr. Morehouse goes over and looks at him. He is shocked by the expression on Blake's face, and Blake is dead. Humanity had nothing to do with the look that was on his face, or with the glassy, morbid vision that blazed in great blue bloodshot eyes shut to this world's images for six years. Those eyes were fixed with an ecstasy of clear-sighted horror on the doorway leading to Simon Tanner's old study, where the sun blazed on walls once shrouded in bricked-up blackness. The inky pupils of those eyes were dilated as cavernously as those of a cat's eyes in the dark. That's pretty good stuff. So Dr. Morehouse begins examining the body before closing Blake's open eyes. The others note that with his hair tussled and the papers scattered all over the floor, maybe some kind of great wind blew into the room? Mm-hmm. One of the investigators begins picking up the pages, but after seeing what's in the typewriter, Dr. Morehouse quickly takes all the pages and shoves them in his pocket. Right, something horrifying was written on that page in the typewriter. Perhaps this very story. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but also the doctor in his examination determines that death must have happened at least a half hour before they discovered the body. But what? they had heard typing all the way up to the time they entered the house which was like 10 minutes ago. So what? They continue their search of the house, but they don't find anything out of the ordinary. There are no signs of foul play. There had been some kind of trap door, I guess, in Tanner's study back when he owned the place that led to a subcellar and a tunnel under the swamp, which is all pretty awesome. But that was all filled in when they burned his body back in the day. Yeah, so it's kind of like, why did they even mention that? You don't mention that, man. <laughs> Tunnel into the swamp? I want to know all about that stuff. Yeah, I got really excited. They go, oh, yeah, but it was all filled in. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Just hang a plaque up there. There was a monster here once. <laughs> <laughs> so they call the sheriff of Fenham and the county medical examiner at Bayborough, which is, again, a reference to the city in Love Dead. Mm-hmm. The sheriff, when he gets there, he swears them in as deputies until the examiner arrives. He does this because... No, just something to do, I guess. Just something to pass the time. <laughs> you guys got any playing cards? Nope. Ah, let's do some deputizing. <laughs> We're going to be waiting here a while. <laughs> Man, you're making me think, though, you know, the Baybro and Fenham and all the stuff is in his little shared... I mean, what if you got assigned to fictional lands to live in and this is the one you got assigned to? It was just like really limp, semi-Lovecraftian things happening. <laughs> Obviously... In reality, I would much prefer to live in these places. That's true, it's only actually. Yeah. One real serial killer That's and true. kind of a creepy house. And the werewolves are all ghosts. So. Yeah, <laughs> easy. So next they talk to Dobbs. And they yes. kind of get his testimony of what happened. Dr. Morehouse has to go to this villager's house to talk to him. That's where he's staying right now because he's still freaked out. I had to read these paragraphs a few times to understand what was even going on. But Me too. Yes, he's gone over to this villager's house to talk to Dobbs. Can, I, can you tell me what you know now that you're less crazy? He's still freaked out when he talks to him. And he doesn't remember much about what he saw. This episode brought on amnesia probably because of the insanity, you know, of what he witnessed. Right. He remembers being in the room, which was sunny, and then it became dark like it was when it was bricked up. Right, and that's all he really remembers. He just went nuts and ran away, and it took him some time to come to his senses. Although I'm sure in that time he also got some kisses. You know, he's not telling the doctor about that because he's a gentleman. Of course, yeah, he can't. He can't kiss week. and tell. Yeah, yeah. He can't kiss and tell. The doc tells him that the master is dead and he died of a heart attack. Dobbs is sad about it. They were good pals. He's going to take charge of the body and bring it back to Boston. Now, with all that sorted out, the doctor can get to the manuscript. What? There's a manuscript? No! Oh, no, and we're going to read it, I guess. He says here, At last he was free to read the typed manuscript of the dead man and to gain at least an inkling 
of what hellish thing had defied those shattered senses of sight and sound and penetrated so disastrously to the delicate intelligence that brooded in external darkness and silence. He knew it would be a grotesque and terrible perusal, and he did not hasten to begin it. So he took his time, got ready, put on his dressing gown, lighted some scented candles, put on some Sade, I guess. He wanted to set a mood. Yeah, this is a long, long setup. The story itself has such a long setup. Of course, he's going to take a little more time before he reads this manuscript. (laughs) There's this letter from Lovecraft to Eddie dated November of 1924. Uh, yeah. that I found online. It was acquired by Buzz Bookstore, which is an online antique bookstore. And it actually talks about the story. I looked at the letter itself, and it looks like Lovecraft's handwriting. I assume it's authentic. It says, there was just something in it I didn't know about. It says, uh, Dear C.M. Eddie Jr., Telegram just arrived. Sorry to have delayed so, but have recently been in turmoil of engrossing misfortunes, financial and otherwise, amidst which not a moment of unworried leisure has existed. For one thing, my wife has suffered a nervous breakdown. In hospital 10 days, later on farm in Somerville, New Jersey for rest, and now back again, pending breaking up of housekeeping, which her health necessitates. I didn't know about this nervous breakdown thing. No, I didn't know about that either. Or maybe we did know it and I just forgot about it, but... <laughs> that's that's probably it. Well, when, when he says pending breaking up of housekeeping, which her health necessitates, does that mean they're going to... They're breaking up. Like, he, he's not going to be around her. It says, just where I shall board depends on what comes of my latest effort at a commercial affiliation. I'm hanging on here for present and will tell you my new address when I have one. So I think... Hmm. In that little paragraph, he's like, my wife had a nervous breakdown and I'm, and we're splitting up, basically. Wow. Uh, not a moment to touch deaf, dumb, and blind, but here it is. And you can tell that ass right, I believe he's referring to Farnsworth Wright from Weird Tales, mm-hmm. for one, that the story is much better with its present cumulative beginning than it would be with any popular magazine abrupt opening. Tell him mm-hmm. to study the work of Arthur Mackin and note how the great god Pan starts. So we know he got some pushback from an editor that said this uh-huh. thing takes forever to get to the yeah, the good stuff. <laughs> so I agree with Farnsworth, right? It says there's a few more things, and then it says, "Well, that's all." Uh, hope he plays dead, deaf, dumb, and blind to advantage, and that the readers take to it. Yikes! Didn't really turn out. Yeah. As usual, your most obedient, obedient servant, HPL. There's a few other things in there, but yeah, there you go. It was obviously when he was doing this revision, coming at a very delicate time in his yeah, life in New York, gosh. which was a surprise to me. Anyway, uh, Lovecraft thinks the cumulative beginning is good. I don't agree. Me neither. I agree with Wright. So we find out that after he read this manuscript, Dr. Borhouse went into a state of shock with his wife coming in and finding him out of sorts. Then she, too, read the manuscript. It's almost like that Monty Python's funniest joke in the world. Yeah. But in this story, it's a bit different than that because his wife doesn't get it. So there must be something in this that a folklore-wise doctor has insight to, but she doesn't. Yeah, he knows the secret spooky world enough that it makes more sense to him or honestly she's like i like the love dead better and that was disgusting (laughs) yeah you know when you see an ad for a movie and it's about the ad is like coming soon to video and you think Mm -hmm. wait that came out already yeah that's what this story is like (laughs) (laughs) oh boy that was that was a good one So eventually, uh, the doctor recovers and he decides not to destroy the document, but he does buy the old Tanner house and then he has it destroyed with dynamite. (laughs) Why? Why dynamite? Just knock it down like any normal person would knock a house down. He knows folklore. You don't know. Whatever swamp monster dwells in and around that house, its weakness is dynamite. It's in the (laughs) old books. He also has the swamp trees cut down around the house as well. He doesn't really explain why he did this, and he says that the secret will die with him. Mm -hmm. 
So the doctor's son has made the manuscript available with a few omissions shown in asterisks in the interest of public peace of mind. That's why the certain things were redacted, I guess, from it, even yeah. though when reading it, it doesn't really feel like there was any redactions. It feels <laughs> no. like there's just kind of a pause. And how anyway. are these things actual sentences? Yeah, fragments. They mentioned that there is a change of style at the end of this manuscript, but they will let us be the judge on what that is and how it came to be. One would think that this mind enclosed in a world without sight and sound might have been suffering from some kind of dementia. Right. But who can say but Dr. Morehouse? No, of course. (laughs) He's just going to believe everything that's in here (laughs) from this weird author from Boston. Yes. Well, this must have happened. And that gets us into... The manuscript. Finally, almost two-thirds of the way through through the story. It begins with Blake worried because Dobbs has not answered his summons, a ringing of a bell. He pounds on the table as well. It's not just a malfunction with the bell. Dobbs is right. gone. He's all alone. And something has just happened in the last few minutes that has prompted him to begin writing down his impressions. A certain sinister suggestion of impending tragedy connected somehow with the history of this house. With Dobbs missing, he feels helpless, and he realizes how much he depends on him for pretty much everything. Yeah, he says Dobbs has been his sixth sense, and without him, he's just left alone with his own disquieting thoughts. The time seems to be slowing down for him. He puts a new piece of paper into the typewriter as he feels an approaching danger. At first, he feels a slight tremor, and then he thinks it might be a truck on the road, but he can sense where the direction of the vibration is coming from, and it's from the swamp behind the house, not the road. And that's kind of interesting that maybe when somebody relies on their sense of touch, I wouldn't be able to tell where vibrations come from, but somebody that would focus on that and Mm -hmm. maybe cultivate that that perception. I think that was kind of interesting. That's an interesting thing right there in the story. I just want to point that out. Yeah, definitely kind of was, yeah. (laughs) Kind of interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the vibrations uh, grow and then they quickly stop and everything seems normal again, but still, Dobbs ain't there, so he thinks something must have happened to him. He then smells smoke and he thinks it's wafting in from inside the house and not out. Mm-hmm. And again, this is kind of a crazy superpower, being yeah. able to tell where the smell's coming from. Heightened sense of smell. He has a vision of a factory on fire, of children crying under collapsed chairs, a schoolhouse burning just kind of worst case scenario stuff is going through his mind. I guess, yeah, or theater fire he thinks of too and, and panic-stricken people fighting to freedom over blistering floors. I wonder, does this have something to do with what he encountered during the war? Yeah. That's you know, what is I it thought a flashback, too. like some kind of, is the smell of smoke triggering a memory, maybe the event that actually caused his disability? I, or or I wasn't sure also it could have been because he's a writer and he's creative, these are dark thoughts that are coming to his right, mind. Right, that's possibly what it is but i'm not sure either either can be i think you're right because if it had been a specific incident that had done this to him you it would have either been the schoolhouse or the factory or the theater the fact that he mentions all of them means that he's just imagining terrible burning scenarios he expects to feel heat on his useless legs but he doesn't and then the smoke begins to smell of burning flesh but then as quickly as it came it's gone all is normal again and he doubts his sanity He feels a throbbing in his ear, like a beating of a drum, but fresh air is also blowing on his face. He senses someone is in the room. Maybe it stops returning, but no, it's something else. And he could hear a whisper. He can actually hear something. That's pretty cool. It's not a single whispering voice, but many. Lecherous buzzing of bestial blowflies, satanic humming of libidinous bees, sibilant hissing of obscene reptiles, a whispering chorus no human throat could sing. (laughs) And it gets louder and louder. Libidinous bees and obscene reptiles. There's some uh, 
dirty animal action happening here. <laughs> At least he can, he can hear that's what's going on. Demoniacal yeah. chanting, tuneless, toneless, and grotesquely grim, a diabolical choir rehearsing unholy litanies. They're not singing, they're just rehearsing. So yeah. people are still trying to learn their parts, I guess. <laughs> wait, wait, I got it, I got it. Wait, wait, I got it. And then a hideous crescendo of pagan pandemonium. So is the devil creeping around in here? Or is it more like the great god Pan, where it's just some kind of general goatish nasty deity? Or is it like a full orgy breaking out in the living room here while he I can't don't... see it? I don't know. The sounds become more clear and he can begin to understand what it's saying and he does not like it. Impious revelations of soul-sickening saturnalia, ghoulish conceptions of devastating debaucheries, profane bribes of Kabirian orgies, malevolent threats of unimagined punishments. It's the voice that sounds like libidinous bees, right? I guess this is the content of what the voice is saying to him about orgies and debaucheries. I mean, this is definitely in the Arthur Mackin tradition. I think that that's what the story's going for. Absolutely. So he feels cold and the temperature in the room drops. He writes, if Doms has deserted me, I don't blame him. But yield I will not to die. Far rather would I have my body torn limb from limb than to contaminate my soul in barbarous barter with such emissaries of Belial. Belial? Belial? I always, I never get that right. That's the devil, though, right? I mean, that's yeah. like... A, it's, it's one so, of the names of the devil, yeah. But he says uh, emissaries, so it's some kind of devil assistants that are in here creeping right. around. Bart, he doesn't want to make a deal mm-hmm. with the devil, I guess. I really wish this was, this was like wait until dark and he could fight back in some way, but he's just kind of taking all of this in. Yeah. He knows it's all real. He doesn't think he's crazy anymore. He just believes it wholeheartedly. And this is in his, he's writing this down as this is all right. happening. He's not mad and he's glad that he is writing this down. His fingers are getting cold, so cold that he feels numb and he thinks, oh, merciful God who took my sight. Yeah. It was an interesting thought because he's been blind for six years. So. Is this something getting into his body and realizing that he is blind? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just thought he was happy that he doesn't have to see whatever, you know. When you hear libidinous bees, you don't want to see what what's producing that sound. No, no, no. <laughs> it's far too horrifying already. You don't want to see your horny bees. God bless America. It feels so cold that it begins to burn and then things change. Unseen fingers grip me. Ghost fingers that lack the physical strength to force me from my machine. Icy fingers that force me into a vile vortex of vice. Devil fingers that draw me down into a cesspool of eternal iniquity. Death fingers that shut off my breath and make my sightless eyes feel they must burst with the pain. Frozen points press against my temple's hard, bony knobs akin to horns. Boreal breath of some long-dead thing kisses my fevered lips and sears my hot throat with frozen flame. It is dark. Not the darkness that is part of years of blindness. The impenetrable darkness of sin-steeped night. The pitch-black darkness of purgatory. I see... Spesmea Christus. It is the end. Not for mortal mind is any resisting of force beyond human imagination. Not for immortal spirit is any conquering of that which hath probed the depths and made of immortality a transient moment. The end? Nay, it is but the blissful beginning. Uh, wrong. That is the blissful end of the story. <laughs> Zing. There was a change at the end of that manuscript, right? And it starts with that not for mortal mind business. That's 
yeah. something taking over his body, right? I mean, what happened? I think what does so. that mean? Well, I think that's what I, I mentioned earlier. The, like, who took my, my sight? I think mm. it was something taking over his body, and then that thing realizing, oh, wait, this guy can't see. Oh, right. I just got shafted here. I should have possessed <laughs> a guy that could see. But what's the point of possessing this body anyway? Because then it just he just died. Well, he gets to write some stuff. Just that. Well, yeah, what he wrote, and I kind of was hard to decipher what it meant, but I think it meant your mortal mind can't resist what you can't imagine because you just have this pitiful human mind. Your immortal soul is no big deal to me because immortality is just a passing moment to me. Mm-hmm. So now I've possessed you or taken your soul, right? That's yeah, the blissful beginning. So. But how is it the blissful beginning? Because then the then he just dies. So it's not like he gets to yeah. run around and cause any havoc. Or maybe he takes his soul and it's able to do messed up things with it or something yeah and then i think it's implied that he gets the bony protuberances on his head too as a result of whatever this possession is so yeah maybe right. he just took his his soul and scampered away with it i don't yeah, know because the last bit i see spes me christus which is christ is my hope i think mm. it is the end kind of like a final prayer as he goes out but you know the question i had uh after reading this is why mm-hmm. should i care <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you. I got here. Um, this is from an H.P. Lovecraft encyclopedia mm-hmm. on the entry about this story. In a letter to August Derleth, Eddie reports that H.P. Lovecraft was unhappy with my handling of the note found in the typewriter at the very end of the protagonist's account of his eerie experiences. The final paragraph that seemed to have been typed by one of his uh, persecutors. After several conferences over it and an equal number of attempts on my part to do it justice, he finally agreed to rewrite the last paragraph. Mm. This seems to suggest that although perhaps not by design that H.P. Lovecraft revised only the last paragraph. In truth, the entire tale was probably revised, although Eddie presumably wrote the first draft. You can see little hints of Lovecraft's, you know, style throughout yeah, it, oh, but definitely yeah, sure. in those last couple of, you know, in the manuscript itself. Definitely feel like a bit of Lovecraft. And, of yeah. course, uh, there's some statement of Randolph Carter kind of stuff going on here. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the end with the the baddies talking, you know, that's kind of the, the scary bit there. Some of the Dunwich horror with Simon Tanner, you know, he bricked up the windows in the southeast room. Remember in Dunwich World, right, they bricked up the, right. the house because they had the Wilbur's brother was in there. Some germs of things that were going to kind of come out later, I think. This is it, really. I have nothing yeah, more to say about I don't Lovecraft have much more to say. and his stories. No, uh, no. <laughs> I don't have anything more to say about this story, that's for sure. No. Um, but yeah, that that's the very last of any fiction that he wrote or messed around with that uh, we're going to be covering um, yeah. not, not that we've covered any of his stuff for quite some time but uh, yes. But that's it that's all we've got uh, I want to thank Andrew Lehman for taking this ride with us man Andrew Lehman once again it's like uh, being scooped up in the arms of a giant gorilla mm-hmm. that reads well <laughs> just like that a loving gorilla you know that can yeah. cuddle me and, and hold me and yeah. the, the warmth of his voice is like that right but then also that gorilla can talk and sounds really nice. And has a jetpack. I'd also like to thank our patrons because without you guys, we wouldn't be still doing this crazy show. Exactly. And I specifically want to thank a few of them right now. I want to thank Anastasia Miramontes. I'd like to thank Mark Vincent. I'd like to thank Monkey King. Wow. <laughs> Royalty listens to our podcast. Know, it's wow. exciting. I'd like to thank Ham Operator. I want to think, did you say, would you think ham operator just now? Ham operator, yes. Do you think that's like a ham radio operator or? Or somebody that operates on pigs? Like it, oh, doctor? yeah. Maybe it's a surgeon. 
A surgeon? Yeah. Wow, we have physicians listening to the show. That's awesome. I yes. want to thank Dylan White. I'd like to thank Andrew Trinisak. I'd like to thank Andrei Whithead. I'd like to thank Robert Davis. I would love to thank Kelly Kluckman. Last but not least, thank you, Connor Wilson. Really appreciate you continuing to be on the team that gets this show done. That's all we have for CM Eddie this month. Next month, we're going to be entering the October country and doing right, some yes. early Ray Bradbury. That's what we're going to dip into for the Halloween season. Uh, but for now, we're going to let you go. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!